This is the What Matters Most podcast. A 100% listener-supported program. And now, here is your host, Paul Samuel Dolman. Welcome back to What Matters Most. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in all over the world and sending in guest suggestions, book ideas, or just sharing about your beautiful lives or what you're going through. Appreciate the community and the tribe. Have a nice gift for you today. She has written a wonderful book called The Flowering Wand, Rewilding the Sacred Masculine. I've been really waiting for a book like this, and this was a deep, deep read. I had to like read a few paragraphs, put it down, and then go for a walk and ponder. It's such an honor to welcome the author to the show for the first time. Sophie Strand, welcome to the show. It's an honor to be here. How are you feeling? I know from uh, other things that you've, you've had some ups and downs health-wise. How are you feeling in the moment today? Are you feeling good and strong? Well, I have an incurable genetic illness with about eight other incurable constellated issues. So I never feel good, <laughs> but I, there are good days and there are bad days. I've definitely been experiencing some pretty intense physical difficulties lately, and I'm just trying to collaborate with them and understand where they're, where they are telling me to step. And have you had that your whole life and you just had to work with it and around it and through it? Well, it was genetic, but it kicked in when I was 16. So it, it was a condition that didn't manifest until I was 16 and it manifested overnight. And pretty much I was life-threateningly ill. I went from being, you know, a track runner, an athlete, you know, a very healthy young woman to being in hospitals for the rest of my high school experience. So, yeah. Um, and ever since then, it's been something that I've had to, I've had to dance with. How do you keep your spirit strong in light of all that? I think sometimes I don't. I think to, you know, problematize this idea of like, you know, the the beatific saintly victim, <laughs> you know, it's really, really difficult. Um, you know, I think when I was first ill, there was still a sense that before I got a diagnosis, because my condition is relatively rare, it took a long time to get a diagnosis. Um, there was still a sense that when they figured out what was wrong with me, they could fix me. And I think when I when they finally found out that I have a genetic connective tissue disease that is incurable. That was a whole other experience of having to come to terms with something that I was going to have to learn to live with and to collaborate with. Um, and that there was no normal I was going to return to. And sometimes I think that in capitalism, there's this idea of the atomized individual and that your health is something that you have to attain as an individual. And this puts an inordinately large amount of pressure on individuals who are the, you know, bearing the symptoms of entangled networks of oppression and pollution and breakdown. And how can we expect healing to happen in an individual body when it's caused by entangled macroscopic systems? So I think when I got this diagnosis of connective tissue disease, I thought, oh, well, I love fungal connective tissue systems in the soil. I've been obsessed with them philosophically and scientifically for years. So what if I devote myself to their cause? And what if my healing isn't going to happen necessarily in my own organism, but my in, in my extended body, my extended network of kin? I love that. And you're touching on something I've been thinking, saying, and dealing with for decades, or I see the system in infinite ways is so polluted and disease that I feel like it's almost a miracle that any of us are walking around really healthy and strong in spite of all that, whether it's the psychic aspect 
the pesticides, the chemicals that never go away, the poisons, the food, uh, you name it, the system of capitalism, which is so exploitive and repressive. How, how is it that any of us are thriving in spite of that? Exactly. And I think that, you know, I oftentimes say that being well right now is not necessarily a predictor of your own ability to survive what's to come. And that it's to the people who've had to hobble and had to collaborate with physical difficulty and disability who know how to improvise with unpredictable experiences. So we might have a lot to learn from disabled people and disabled ecologies. How do you collaborate with pollution when you can't get rid of it? How can you begin to learn how to digest radioactive material like oyster mushrooms in Chernobyl rather than trying to offload it onto some other community? Where did COVID play in all this over the last couple of years? Because to me, that was symptomatic of what we're talking about. You mean, are you asking for my big take? <laughs> yes. I, I, I shy away from big, grand, unifying theories. And I think that, uh, that the, the desire to create a grand, unifying theory for COVID necessarily um, erases so many other complexities. I, th I think that we were going to experience a pandemic. I mean, that seemed clear for a really, really long time, given the way that we are living on the earth and given the fact that pandemics are um, a natural respiration <laughs> um, of, of, you know, the microbial viral biosphere. And I, I think that the pandemic has been, uh, it has, it has been non-rational and i think i think we keep trying to approach it approach it with our cartesian daylight um systems of of, of um, control and it will not be captured it is uncapturable i love that and there are a bunch of micro takes around it too it's it's very layered like everything and since you see that the, everything in the soil is connected and i think everything's connected isn't this some sort of expression from Mother Gaia, too? This is something I feel like it's because I feel like the Earth is this beautiful, living, credible being that I can't even get any. No one could get their mind around it. And it's kind of I feel there's messages in this sort of thing. And then that's up to us to interpret and could be completely wrong. But I felt like there was a lot of wisdom at least offered through COVID and the pandemic and, and some of the other things that are unfolding. I mean, I'm, I'm deeply in alignment with you that the, the biosphere um, in dynamic homeostasis is an intelligent animate being, that it's a holobiont, an assemblage of other beings that creates a larger being. Just like we are more fungal and bacterial cells than we are human cells, we are ecologies rather than we are individuals. So is the earth, this breathing entity created by other entities that are entangled, eating, digesting, lovemaking, collaborating, dying back, fruiting back up. And so I can see the one thing I'm really interested in is thinking about how we have created so much disturbance that to maintain that homeostatic, dynamic homeostasis of the biosphere, Gaia, if we're going to call the earth that, is having to do a lot of reorganization right now that's happening on a scale much longer than a human lifetime and much bigger than a human sensory apparatus. And so we can get meaning, but it's like the, it's like the meaning that an ant can get of us, you know, standing over it. And I think we always have to practice humility about how much we are able to see. Yeah. I'm thinking of the blind men all gathered around the elephant and having their perspectives. Yeah, exactly. And again, I always talk about the earth and life uh, terms because 
if it's billions of years old, give or take, then a thousand years is like a nanosecond in our body. Exactly, exactly. So and we've only been a real pain in the ass maybe for 200. So that's like almost immeasurable in the Earth's life. And yet already this ecosphere, this organism, this living thing, whatever words we wrap around it, is adapting and responding and changing because of our disturbance. I love that word, uh, what we're causing. Yeah. So how could the cells be like super happy, healthy and happy roaming around? I mean, given all that in our little micro lives. I know. I mean, I, it's hard to imagine what health is right now. If you're healthy inside a ca capitalist system that produces utopia by creating other people's dystopias, what, what is your health? I think that health is, is haunted by the dystopias that it is created from um, right now. That you know your medicines, your the technology that's keeping you alive are all created through extractive, ecocidal capitalism. And I'm not saying I'm a person who depends on a lot of medical prosthesis and a lot of help, so I'm not problematizing that. I'm just saying that it's complex, and we need to look at these relational networks that bring our bodies into livability. When did it change? We had this sort of divine feminine relationship for hundreds of thousands of years it was sustainable and then was it around the time of samaria where we started to go more to the patriarch and the the gods and the pyramid and the story that we came from the sky or from somewhere else and then we would have dominion over the earth and then we had slavery farming exploitation i know it didn't change overnight like with a, a comet or anything like that but at some point, the mass, our relationship to the earth, the, the masculine shifted. And, and I think it became what we're seeing now, so, you know, incredibly toxic. I mean, I think the desire to locate a singular origin is tied to a kind of neo-Darwinian impulse to create a linear sequential narrative, a processual experience. But the truth is that in many cultures, the idea of time is more cyclical, as repeating, as nonlinear, as spiralic. And so this idea to locate an original moment is sometimes problematic. That being said, I do think there's some crucial shifts that happen that seem to really create the conceptual frameworks for violence, for um, dominator cultures and for patriarchy. I mean, I'm really interested in the movement from play agriculture um, inside of hunter-gatherer communities. So hunter-gatherers practice agriculture in a kind of play um, non-committal way for thousands of years. And they would do it for a season and they'd go back to hunter and gathering. But there was a moment when these communities stopped moving, created cities, started creating granaries and hoarding food. And suddenly you see a real shift in the way humans live together um, at that moment in time. And there are a lot of theories for what, you know, compelled that movement from this relatively sustainable way of, of living to this actually really hard to maintain um, lifestyle. Like agri when, when agriculture actually becomes the main practice of a people, they are getting less calories. They're getting sicker. They're having to work like eight more hours a day to produce food. Um, so what act what makes people make this sacrifice to move to agriculture? I think there's this simplistic idea that agriculture makes sense. That's, that's why people did it, but actually it didn't make sense at the time period. They were giving up a lot of ease to do it. I mean, there's some theories that there was a um, global-wide 
climate event, that there were catastrophes. And it, as a kind of cultural somatic interpretation, it was a trauma response. It was, you know, we our, all our food was destroyed. All our lives were destroyed. We need to create a more controlled way of surviving. And so perhaps civilization and agriculture are a cultural somatic response to these um, global wide catastrophes that would have happened probably around 10,900 years ago. Um, and that's really when you see the shift into these uh, into um, civilizations into cities and to hierarchies. Um, and then you, you see agricultural states and then commercialized agricultural states. I mean, I'm also really interested in the movement from oral cultures where knowledge is always nested within narratives that are adapted freshly to extra textual, um, extra textual information and relationship and ecological and social pressures each time they're told. They're always a verb, they're always relational to alphabetic writing and texts that become this solipsistic anthropocentric experience of knowledge where knowledge can be objectified. It's not a relationship, it's static. Um, and I think that the movement from orality to alphabetic literacy creates a kind of anthropocentric abstraction that allows us to think we can dominate nature. That when we're telling our stories to nature and expecting it to respond, and we're carrying on a dialogue with our natural environments in order to best know how to survive, how to eat food, how to keep these ecologies vibrant, you know, we, we have to understand that the world is animate, it's bumptious, it's responsive. But when we pin these words, we take them away from their actual lived experience and pin them to a page, we can pretend that they are objects that we own, that we can hoard, like we start to hoard grain in granaries. What drew you to all this? Were you in the myths as a child? Did you start to go out into nature and did you feel it literally that it was all connected? Well, I was raised by parents who were really interested in the history of spirituality and religion. And, you know, my dad's an ex-Buddhist monk and he's run inter and my parents have run interfaith groups for years. So I was I was raised in a household with theologians and rabbis and Theravadan Buddhist monks and nuns and writers and eco-anarchists, you know, talking over the dinner table. I was also raised in the mountains uh, and my parents would rehabilitate possums. We had cats, we had dogs, we had geese. So I was raised, and I sometimes say my parents are kind of, you know, animists. They're, they're po poly-spiritual animists. And they were very, very um, devoted to um, getting me to understand that the world was alive. In fact, I don't actually think there was ever a point in my life where I didn't think that every being was alive and alive differently than me, which would require some amount of imagination and dialogue. Um, and when I talk about animism, I always want to, problematize this relatively like neoliberal idea of it as a homogenizing universalism, like a thick soup where everything is the same in the same way. And I'm much more interested in an animism of prickling differences where it's the differences that keeps the lymph of aliveness moving. You know, it's the gradient from the top of the mountain to the valley that carves the river into the stone that creates the movement of the river. And so I'm interested in gradients of differences between ideas, between belief spheres, between ecologies, so yeah, I would say that there, I grew up in a compost heap of spiritual texts, spiritual teachers, animals, <laughs> you know, mountains, fungi, salamanders, and I guess it all combined and sprouted into me. And I know it's too big, but is, is there just this incredibly universal intelligence is, I see woven within everything, small, large, all sizes, seen, unseen, unimaginable, imagined. It's just incredible, really. I mean just a basket and there's really 
we can have a bazillion amazing words that are incredibly beautiful and complex, but it's so beyond anything of language. It's ineffable. It's like, and you can't, I can't even understand it, but I can swim in it. That's beautiful. Yeah, exactly. It requires your whole body. It's never going to be captured within your brain. You you need to enter into it. Yeah. Have you ever had any uh, like ayahuasca or mushroom experiences that brought you beyond, you know, what we normally see with our eyes and hear with our ears? Well, I want to be really careful, which is I, I think these days I'm a psychedelic conservative in the way that I've seen that these plants have been deracinated from their communities, their inheritance and their ecologies transplanted to other situations and to capitalist frameworks in order to provide healing that's tailored to the self rather than to the community. And just like I think myths can't be uprooted from their social, political, and ecological context and transplanted to other cultures, so do so am I suspicious that these plants and animals and, and chemicals can be uprooted from their traditions, their root systems, their network of other um, species, and make sense to someone in New Jersey. So I, 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 am, I am a little, I oftentimes say, you know, there are hallucinogenic plants wherever you live. And you find the one that grows where you live, and it's going to offer you the most tailored medicine to where you are. And so I am I, always sensitive about that, that I feel I'm, I've been very worried by how these, these um, substances have been deracinated from their context. Um, and that being said, I've had um, help from psilocybin. I mean, I am a, a survivor of complex, of P, I'm a survivor of early childhood abuse and I have complex PTSD. And so I oftentimes, I've heard horror stories about ayahuasca being um, foisted onto these survivors as being the only cure. And then the containers are not big enough to hold that trauma and it creates a lot of pain. So I also really, really want to note that, you know, these are very sexy things to do right now, but people have known violence in their life that is you know could destroy you and we don't really we don't have a continuous cultural container for thousands of years that knows how to deal with this we're like we're taking these nuclear um nuclear substances and giving them to people without you know a circle of grandmothers and ancestors um to hold it and so i, I i'm very careful about ever recommending that to someone i do I have a very close relationship to fungi and psilocybin has been deeply helpful at untying certain knots that talk therapy and any other modality couldn't touch. So I'm deeply indebted to psilocybin. And yet I am also reticent to tell people to proselytize about it. Yeah, it's kind of like the colonizing mindset goes into the Amazon or wherever, uh, different places and steals plants. I, I was reading a piece this summer where they caught some guy stealing all these different plants to take back i don't know if it was to china or somewhere and it was like i didn't even realize that that was a thing that people do but it, then i realized we do that with everything we do and the truth is that we're, we're so good at, at looking to other cultures and ecosystems for charismatic cures and so bad at looking at a five mile radius around our own homes for the species and animals and plants that want our attention and have a lot of medicine to give. Like dandelion is not necessarily a sexy plant, and yet it has incredible wisdom to teach us about growing in polluted landscapes and then turning your own body into med medicine that detoxes other people's bodies. Like there's so much spiritual medicine in dandelion. <laughs> you don't have to go to the Amazon to meet a plant that has wisdom for you. 
you mentioned in your title, rewilding the sacred masculine. Will you talk about what that means and what it is in terms of you, your take in the book? Definitely. I will add that that is the title my publishers gave me. And my, and I think it's important to, you know, pull back the, the veil on that. Um, my, my original title title was Lunar Kings, Lichenized Lovers, Rhizomatic Harpists, and Transpe- Transpecies Magicians Heal the Masculine. What I was trying to do in that original subtitle is show that it's not about a sacred anthropocentric deity. It's not about a bioessentialist myth of gender. It's about using ecology, not theology, to think through these myths. Um And so for me, rewilding the sacred masculine is beginning to interrupt this conflation of patriarchy and masculinity and to look backwards and say, did there used to be other myths of what masculinity could do, how it could work? And there are plenty and they're connected to the environment and they're incredibly nature reverent. And so I wanted to resurrect that ancient history of fertile, healthy masculinities, but but also update it with modern science, modern philosophy, um, modern poetry, so that it can be freshly adapted to our current circumstances. Has it been completely lost in this male tox- toxic culture, or do you see signs of it in our life here, you know, in our lives here in the United States? Well, I think that it's really hard to erase anything. Um, and I think that there are incredible people doing incredible work right now, but they, we, we need, you know, stories can affect our material lives and vice versa. So we need more stories so that we can have more resilience, I think, a biodiversity of stories. So yeah, there, I, I think there are people who are playing with the masculine as bard, as, as teacher, as mentor, as dancer, you know, as lover. And I think there are many, many different examples of that, but we also it's been overpowered by this, I oftentimes say this narrative dysbiosis of dominating mas- masculine patriarchy. For the men listening around the world, how do we at least begin to bring this out of ourselves and integrate it you know, in pieces into our day-to-day lives? Well, I think the thing that I've been saying, I mean, the book offers not one option, but many. And it also opens up at the end to say, add your own. This is not a monologue. This is the beginning of a conversation. So I would also welcome listeners to come and contact me with the ways this is rooted in your own life, in your own myths, in your own composted stories. Um, I think the one thing I want to add is that we're very, very fixated on an idea of a um, concrete identity right now. And the truth is that just like our bodies need to keep moving in order to stay alive, so should our identities lunate. So, you know, the moon is always the moon, but it looks different at every different stage of its cycle for 28 days. Some days it's occluded, some days it's it's waxing, some days it's full, sometimes it's just a scimitar of light, and it gets to change within the bowl of inclusion. And I want to say that masculinity needs to experiment. It needs to move its lymphatic system. And I want to encourage people to let their genders, to let their identities, to let their masculinity lunate. Let it be different every single day. Surprise yourself. We're obsessed with order, like you say, and an origin point. Everything's a narrative that fits into a 100-minute Disney movie. And Yeah. 
black and white and our garage looks clean and our lawns are cut. And yet this whole thing is so wild. And I love the idea of letting our hair down metaphorically. Yeah. Relax. And everything isn't so rigid. I feel like it's like the Empire in Star Wars where everything order, order, order. And so much is lost in that, especially the art, the dancing, the music, Dionysus. Lighten up. Drink some wine. Come on. Get out there in the woods and don't try to name everything or categorize everything. Let it let it just flow. Yeah. Let yourself, you know, we're so fixated on ourselves as the author of every story. And I think that we, we have this idea that we can manage ecosystems. But the truth is that our idea of order and management is remarkably incompatible with the entangled, shifting biodiversity of healthy ecosystems. And I think that we need to release this idea that we are the author of the story of the earth or even the author of our own stories. Let ourselves be told, let us become, let ourselves become a mouthpiece for other species. What would that look like? Well, I don't even feel like there is a me. I feel like whatever I am is sort of avataring through this incredible carbon. It's upright in these microorganisms, right? Fungi and God only knows what else. Trillions of cells, 11 trillion, you know, making up numbers like we could really count this shit. And I'm sort of here as a viewing experience organism. I better stay present or the experience will will be very short, you know, if I step in front of a truck. I'm just, I have to keep reminding myself that I'm just the viewer. I am the, the infinite witness. And then also pay the rent and the tax man and take out the trash. But when I move through the world from that, and it's a struggle because the linear mind like is that organism or that thing, that energy system that wants order. We need balance. But when I see it more as that big way, then it's it's just like, again, I'm swimming through something. I don't need to name it. I can't control it. I'll never explain it, but I can experience it. I was early on the alpha male perfectionist, athlete. You know, I was conditioned to do this. And I succeeded by the, the linear masculine standards, but I found it very empty. So then I s continually have to, I'm not stuck in the cage and that I don't go there for comfort and that I'm out in the woods with the wild things. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's really hard to do this within this culture. Like, you know, I, I think sometimes you heal the fish and then throw it back into a poisoned ocean. You know, what are you really doing? Um that, you know, I just want to be compassionate about how difficult this is, that we have to, in, in some ways, fit into the system in order to make the money to pay the bills, to keep our heat on, to pay our medical bills. And so there's, 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 you know, we, we have to salvage a life. I mean, I, I, I'm very allergic to ideas of purity. Like, I, I think we have to hijack the system from the inside by using it, because we have to stay alive. We can't just run off to the forest. And I also sometimes think that you know, I'm involved a lot with ecological somatics and ecological embodiment. And, you know, it's not accessible to people who are disabled or sick in the same way that it is to people who can go run to the forest or hike a mountain or go on a camping trip. So sometimes I like to, to narrow it down and say our own bodies are ecologies, that you don't need to go to a sit spot. You know, the feral uh, reach of your own body is sit spot enough. You know, looking the, the, the fungi in your in your belly button the dysbiosis of bacteria in your gut, the candida, like the viruses that are, are are playing your body like an instrument, like that's animism too. Do you meditate? Do you turn that brilliant mind down a few notches and just sit for 30 minutes or whatever, or have a practice? 
Well, I have to deal, my condition is considered one of the most painful conditions in the world. <laughs> and there's like not really a lot of pain management. So I have to meditate. You know, meditation is sometimes the only way through certain kinds of um, physical bottlenecks. Um, so yeah, I have a deep meditation practice that I've been utilizing for years. Um, and I begin, I begin every morning with the meditation. I think it's really important to to start the day from that quiet spot. I love that. I do a gratitude meditation to start and finish my day because it's like I push the mind in that trajectory in that way. Otherwise, it'll start to find out what's wrong or, you know, make up silly stories. It's also, you know, it's funny. It's also like, you know, if you turn your phone on and off again, sometimes a glitch gets fixed. I think if you if you just take a breath and settle into your root system, into your actual body, um, you know, I try not to leave my body in my meditation. I try to go deeper into my body. Um, and I think if you can really access that center of gravity in your material self, you know, certain issues, you know, they, they blow off the surface of the water. You're right. And I call that the daily reboot. And I'll do it multiple times. And I make myself lay down for like 30 minutes. Sometimes I fall asleep. Sometimes I just breathe. And I, I visualize like I'm a computer unit. I'm turning it off. It doesn't want to be turned off ever. No, no, don't turn me off. Don't turn me off. It doesn't. Don't worry. You'll be back in a few minutes. And then after it's turned off and turned back on, it always is like so happy. Like, oh, I feel great. Thank you. Yeah, let's do that again. And then the next day, no, don't turn me off. Don't, it's conditioned. Like, please. It's like Hal doesn't want to be unplugged in 2001. But Hal was more dangerous, at least that character. I was wondering, too, it's interesting. I don't want to use the word karma. It's too big. But given your conditions, I thought it's like the wounded queen. And through the wound, I wondered, is all this light and all this beautiful art seems to flow in a way, in a kind of like as a writing story? I know you you don't want to, we don't want to pin it down or make up a narrative, but very uniquely is created you. And all this, I just see all this beauty coming out and all this wisdom. Well, I think it's really interesting. We, so we live in a culture that is, in, is fatal to a lot of people. And initiation is not something you order off the menu. I sometimes am very worried by this new age um, fixation on initiation rituals when I want to say that, you know, most people, you know, femmes, non-binary, trans people, disabled people, sick people do not order this off the menu. And yet they have to alchemize it. So I never want to say that your wounding is necessary. And I never want to, I never want to pray to the God of suffering because if I pray to the God of suffering, I'll receive more because I, I will be saying to the world, this is how I learn. And lately I've been saying, I want to learn from joy, from ease, from beauty. Um, I've been trying to redirect where, where I receive my, my medicine and my teachings from that being said, because so many people are non-consensually submitted to these initiation processes, it's important to alchemize them and to make them into something that makes your life more livable and other people's lives more livable. That being said, most people who have these things happen to them don't make it. How many of my friends have committed suicide or died of illnesses? I mean, so I never want to say that your wounding is special or makes you important or everyone, people with wounds are, are more creative or more insightful, you know. There are people I know who have had slow, easy, ordinary lives that have also produced deeply powerful, nourishing information. 
Yes, and I saw it more as this is just the way it worked out. I don't think, oh, you have to be wounded or the wounded artist or the alcoholic writer and the troubled soul, and that's the artist, you know, because some people are really, Paul McCartney seems pretty healthy and grounded and has written the most amazing music for 60 years. Or, And I do what you, you're doing. I always ask to learn, but without pain, joyfully. I have a very specific all the time, sort of semi-wimpy. That would be my... Uh, like, please, no suffering, but I'd love to learn. And then it's up to me because a lot of times the teaching or the whispers come. And if I ignore them, then they get louder or I will suffer. You know, take your hand off the stove. It's getting warm. Or I know better than infinite intelligence or my ego says it does in this case, you know, and then there's, ooh, you're a little suffering. Where if I listen, I swear it whispers all the time from you might want an umbrella or maybe go the other way. Be careful here. Or just subtleties. And I'll remember something is whispering to me that's trying to help me. It's helping. That's a great way of putting it, actually, which is, you know, I, I oftentimes think we receive so much information, sensory information all the time that we gate out in order to homogenize our reality and function. And this used to be this sensory gating used to happen in indigenous cultures to make sense of the world ecologically. So it'd be like so that you could distinguish one plant from another see the color of a fruit against a background you know see see leaf perturbations and know that certain weather was coming but for now but now our sensory gating is keyed to culture to culture so what we're really gating out is the aliveness of the world and the intuition of our entire organism we're, we're, we're gating out that you know sometimes i think of people people think of intuition and that that voice as being supernatural but truly i actually think it's it's our bodies getting so much information that's useful, that's telling us many, many things on entangled system-wide levels that we'll never never be able to grasp. But because we've gated out so much of that stimulus, it's really hard to hear it. Well, I love the way you put that. Well, it's like a neural pathway. If you don't use it, it dissolves. If you use it a lot, it grows strong. I feel that way with intuition and meditation and all these things. It's that inner listening. And call me crazy but for years i've been out in the woods in nature and now my garden and i swear i feel like i communicate with everything the plants or put me over here i want more sun or even the crows that watch hey do you mind putting out some fresh water oh yeah sure put it down they i walk away they come down they drink the water and the next day they bring me a little tiny christmas ornament that's like oh thank you i'm put that on the altar and even if people think that's nuts, I'm tuning into something and I'm having a, a beautiful experience. It's very positive. Yeah, I think that living well requires seeming a little bit mad to people who are participating in, in the overculture. And I always I always want to encourage madness and nonsense and games and play. And I think that those are actually going to be the most revolutionary tactics right now. I'm glad you added that last part, too, because I'm infinitely silly, and I feel like the universe has a wicked sense of humor and is hysterical. Oh, me, too. I, I oftentimes say that, like, true synchronicities, true magic always has a really good sense of humor that, you know, like, your your deity is going to communicate with you through bumper stickers, not through, like, angels, you know? It's trickster gods, too, or I'll be the butt of the joke, and I'll even laugh, but I'll say it's funnier if I wasn't the butt of the joke, but I have to admit that's genius, and it's brilliant. Thank you. You made me laugh, or it's just so funny. And even all the crazy is so absurd if you step back from it. 
And I also think one way to interrupt becoming becoming mired in your own suffering is to laugh. You can say, wow, this is such bad luck. What is going on? And you begin to laugh at it and suddenly you've interrupted the whole feedback loop of suffering, accepting more suffering, getting stuck in it. Yeah. There's an old movie, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, and they go through all this stuff for the gold. A bunch of guys die and it's greedy. And in the end, the bandits cut open the bags and the gold just blows back in the hills. And the old man, he, uh, Walter Houston, he just starts to laugh at it all. And then the other guys laugh too, because it was just the absurdity of it all. It was a great metaphor for it going back to its origin. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Yeah, exactly. The the overculture is extraordinarily serious. And then activism on the other pole is also extraordinarily serious. And so there, I think there's a, a, pl- a playful third option whereby we align ourselves with the tricksters. We collude with other species. We do things in a way that isn't... Um, deemed appropriate by the dominant culture if you and i ventured here from a spaceship and we surveyed the current situation and we and we tuned into these great ecosystems i would come with the detached diagnosis that you know you'd be a lot better off if you went from eight billion parasites to maybe a hundred million the hundred million are the ones who live in more accordance with nature and blend in and live in harmony with nature And if I was a betting shaman, I would think that that's probably where it's going to end up if we don't adapt to what we are. If we think we're bigger than that and bigger than physics and bigger than this beautiful biosphere and the flow of the universe, good luck. You're going to end up in the Museum of Extinction. Yeah. And I also think it's important to realize that every being that's ever existed has gone extinct. And in fact, extinction events created the open ecological niches in which mammalian life experimented and created us. That we, I oftentimes say, we are not the children of a garden. We're not the children of Eden. We're the children of a crater, of an extinction event. And so I also think we need to decouple ourselves from the idea of human supremacy and human survival that I want to align myself with so many other species that it doesn't matter if I individually or if I as a species individually survive. What matters is that the general aliveness of the world is maintained and mulched. Amen. Yeah, because if the reptiles were around, we the small mammals would have never had a shot. We would have been picked off like, you know, easy pickings. So, and it's not that big a deal because life is nothing but re- reincarnation. It's just the energy moving through all this infinite carbon and being creative. Just look at a giraffe or in anything. It's like amazing if you really look at it. It's just constant recreating. Everything has a beginning and an end in the universe, in the time-space universe that we know about. So don't be too attached to what form it takes. And I feel the same way, way about what shows up in the moment. Don't be overly attached to how it shows up. Be flexible. And that brings me a lot of peace because... I find with rigidity, there's pain. Yeah, definitely. You know, uh, something rigid can break, but something flexible can move with the wind. And I think that we have a lot of wind coming that we're not going to be able to predict with any kind of accuracy. So it's better to be flexible and improvisational right now than it is to try and control the outcome. Before I let you go, I want to ask, what's a trans-species magician? Well, a trans species, it's actually the oldest inheritance. So we're very fixated on the archetype of the divine feminine and cave art and early Paleolithic art. But the truth is that the earliest representations of the human are these trans species figures. So human, they're 
they're theriomorphic, which means like therio means beast, animal, morph means to change. So, you know, you have the shaman or the spirit worker, as I call them, of Trifor in the caves um, in France, who has owl eyes, hooves, a tail, a lion face, and a human body and phallus and antler horns. And so you see that some of the earliest representations of the of, of the human are as being melded with other animals. And in fact, if we look at, you know, spirit workers across cultures, the spirit worker gains their insight in how to heal, how to adv advocate for the environment, not in the world of men, but by wearing the minds and embodying the bodies of other animals. You know, there's that great moment at the start of T.H. White's Once and Future King about King Arthur, where the character of Merlin teaches Arthur how to be a king, not by teaching him about men, but transforming him into different animals. Um, and this also plays into the origin story of the bard Taliesin, the magician Taliesin, who um, the goddess Caridwyn turns into many different creatures so that he becomes a bard by practicing a kind of kaleidoscopic empathy, by practicing being other beings. And so for me, transspecies magicians are, are deep inheritance of thinking and being like other beings to learn what medicine they have to offer us. And we, we see this across many different cultures. I mean, the, the figure of Merlin is definitely the, the most obvious example, which is in the earliest, you know, the Welsh Mabinogion and the earliest um, references we have to him, he comes in to give advice to the court, to the king, but then he goes mad and runs in the forest again. And he can't he can't get any of his prophetic magical um, juice from the world of men. He always has to be stitching the forest back to the world of men and the world of men back into the forest. So he's that permeable, permeable barrier between animal and human, the ecotone. You've been listening to the What Matters Most podcast a 100% listener-supported program. If you feel inspired, please go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash whatmattersmost and join our family. So until the next time, stay inspired and in the light.